Uh, we're continuing our series today called Simplify. If you want to open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, open your Bibles, turn on your phones, whatever you need to do. just want to read this verse, and this is out of the message. This is a paraphrase of this chapter in the Bible. It says this, There's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on earth, a right time for birth and another for death, a right time to plant and another to reap, a right time to kill and another to heal, a right time to destroy and another to construct, a right time to cry and another to laugh, a right time to lament and another to cheer, a right time to make love and another to abstain, a right time to embrace and another to part, a right time to search and another to count your losses, a right time to hold on and another to let go, a right time to rip out and another to mend, a right time to shut up and another to speak up, a right time to love and another to hate, a right time to wage war and another to make peace. A time for everything. And today we're going to be talking about time. And today's, just a little disclaimer, it's kind of a lighthearted message. We've had a couple of really heavy messages, and if you come to church to really be challenged, that's great. That'll happen here, probably not today. Just a little disclaimer. We're going to be talking about, in the, as we've been going through the Simplify series, spiritual practices that unclutter your soul. Today we're talking about this idea of overscheduled to organize. And when you ask people how they're doing, the most common response you often hear is, I'm doing well, but I'm crazy busy. You hear this crazy busy phrase over and over again. And it's like, I'm doing well, I want people to know, you know, things are good, I got it all together, but I'm really important, so I've got a lot of things to do. And I know my life is just crazy, crazy busy. I don't know if I accomplish a lot, but I'm always busy doing something. And so um, looking at schedules is what we kind of want to do today. And I believe as we're followers of Jesus, as we're disciples of Jesus, I want to look at kind of the life of Christ and what we can learn from that. So scheduling is interesting. I listen, I'm a big history fan, and I listen to this podcast uh, by, uh, it's called Hardcore History. And super interesting podcast if you, if you want to check it out. But I listen to it all the time. And he's talking about some really fascinating people who had strange schedules throughout history. And starts with Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had a really interesting schedule. He used to work from bed. Back before they had laptops and iPads, he would work from bed. And it said he would work like to 2 to 3 a.m., just from his bed, and then he would go to sleep, and he'd wake up at 7 a.m., and he'd work from bed till 11 a.m., and, and he's one of the most fascinating figures in history. We know how much he accomplished, and he did most of that, so much of that, working from his bed. Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, there is something called the sleep of genius that is named after Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci basically decided that he didn't want to give up an eight-hour block to sleep at night because he would be less productive. And so what Leonardo da Vinci did, whenever he felt tired, whatever time of the day, he would just lay down and take like a two hour nap. It was a power nap. And so he wouldn't have a set sleeping time. He just said, when I'm tired, I'll sleep. And then I'll wake up after two hours because I don't want to sleep too long so I'm unproductive. And so he had this thing called the sleep of genius. When you look at the life of Thomas Jefferson, similar, very similar thing. Benjamin Franklin, very similar thing. Benjamin Franklin would say, you probably need about eight to nine hours and 24 of sleep to be healthy. So he would take these three-hour naps basically throughout the day and not have this long sleeping schedule. Just whenever it would come up, he would sleep. Uh, Thomas Edison, the inventor, uh, would strategically place cots around his laboratory and his house so that whenever he got tired, he would just sleep because he wouldn't sleep 
through the night. And so when we talk about scheduling and we talk about kind of the ideal of what a schedule is supposed to be, what you'll find is that there's all sorts of fascinating people that think outside of the box and have these weird sleeping schedules, and that's okay. So there's no like right or wrong schedule that we need to have or disciplines that we need to have. But the, uh, I, I think the reason we need to talk about it is this, the why. The reason that we want to talk about it is life is too short to not be intentional with your schedule. Life is too short to not be intentional with your schedule. And if you're not intentional, you'll miss, miss what matters most. You'll miss what matters most. At the same time, life is too long to allow your schedule to steal from you. Life is too long to allow your schedule to steal from you because you won't have energy what matters most for what matters most over the long haul. We live in a marathon, not a sprint. And so there's reasons that we need to control our schedule because life is too short, and then other reasons because life is too long and we need to pace ourselves. But the question I want to ask today is, if God were in charge of your schedule, what would it look like? If God were in charge of your schedule, if he was setting it for you, what would that look like? And so to answer that question, I want to look at the life of Jesus. And we've been looking at Jesus and kind of everything that we do is we, we tell these Jesus stories and we say, as followers of Jesus, we want to be transformed into his likeness. So we look sometimes at the action of Christ, of what he does. Sometimes we look at the teaching of Christ, what he teaches us and how that influences us. Today, I kind of want to, I want to look at like the inaction of Christ, the inactivity, what he doesn't do and kind of draw from that for a schedule. So if we look at Christ, if we look at his life through the Gospels, what we find is that in the life of Christ, there is solitude and prayer. When thinking about his schedule, how he expends his energy, there's this huge emphasis on a life of solitude and prayer. And Jesus does so much with his life, but it always, always reserves time for solitude and prayer. If you open to Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, there's this uh, really interesting story, and this is just kind of at the start of Jesus' life. And I'll start in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So there's this temptation of Christ story that takes place here. And this is right at the beginning kind of of Jesus' ministry, right before he goes and he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like his most famous teaching. It says that the Spirit... The Spirit of God leads him into the desert. He retreats, to be, and then the devil tempts him. It says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So there's this idea of Jesus retreating, getting away, and God pulls him away before he gets ready to start this unbelievable ministry. Before he goes to do the Sermon on the Mount, there's this time of retreating and fasting and prayer. Jesus starts his vocation out of solitude. Jesus starts this new job that he has, this new calling on his life. Solitude is what starts it. And so I think there's something in that for us today, before we start on any great endeavor, before we start on any new job, we have these vocations that change so much in our culture now, but to take time, set apart, set aside for fasting, prayer, solitude. And what we find in this story is Jesus and, and Satan, they have to hash a few things out. Jesus has to kind of have a, some certain things in his life where he just uh, understands this is what God's called me to do and not to be this kind of leader, not to be that kind of leader. But this is, and so through that fasting and prayer, there's this time of identity that Jesus develops before he starts his ministry. My dad and mom just came back in town, stepping down from a, a large church, being a lead pastor, moving into a lead role as a state director. They've got like a six-month time period for them to just kind of spend in solitude, renewal. I don't know if you're going to be fasting or not, but 
Spending praise is no way. Not with Chino's close. Yeah, uh, sp- spending time in prayer uh, kind of before this next season of life. So solitude before any great endeavor, solitude before vocation. Another story that takes place in Luke chapter 6 is solitude, what we find in Jesus. And what you find is like there's these, these phrases where he, he retreats and, he, and he's, he's walking away from things constantly. In Luke chapter 6 verse 12, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. So in this story, Jesus chooses the disciples and chooses those who would become apostles. There's this huge decision that he's making where he's saying, these are the guys I'm going to go basically to war with. These are the guys that I'm going to choose as my disciples. They're going to be the ones that I become closest to. Before he does that, he spends an entire night in prayer. So there's solitude before big decisions that Jesus puts into the rhythm of his schedule. Before making huge decisions that are going to influence uh, into, really for, for this, into eternity. But before a huge decision, there's this solitude, a whole night spent in prayer. And then in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17, we came across this passage this week in our Bible study on Tuesday mornings, but it's the transfiguration. And it talks about, this is this moment in, in Jesus' life where he's transfigured before uh, the disciples' eyes and something happens inside of him that starts to be revealed on the outside of him. And so just reading through it, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. And there's this fascinating thing that happens in this story that we can't get to today, but it's a significant moment in the life of Christ where he's transfigured. And in this moment, he takes the closest people that he has to them up onto a mountain to pray. And what we find is how Jesus orders his life. He's got kind of like this inner three, these three disciples who he's closest to. They're like his best friends. And then he's got the 12, and then he's got kind of the 120. But when he goes and has something really significant that happens to him, he takes these three and he gets away to pray and have them be a part of kind of what's about to take place in his life. There's solitude with a few of his closest, most trusted people in this story. So solitude at the beginning of vocation, solitude before big decisions, and solitude before significant Events. One of the uh, really good books that would go along with this series is by Gordon MacDonald, and it's called Ordering Your Private World, where he talks about having kind of starting life with, with kind of this foundation of, of prayer and solitude. And he talks about this idea that prayer for us as followers of Jesus is like this distinct market advantage in a culture of busyness, where we can actually stop, pause, slow down, order everything before something big happens. And what we find in Jesus is he starts to spend his time and energy. He always stops before then in solitude and prayer by himself or with his closest friends. I just read a book called Into the Heart of the Sea. It's the tragedy of the whale ship Essex. It's a movie coming out by Ron Howard in March. And it's about the whale that inspired the story Moby Dick, this real true story that happened the, the shipwreck that was as popular in the 1800s as the Titanic was in the 1900s. And I read this book, and it's unbelievable. I'm so excited for the movie to come out. But as you start to understand the whaling industry in the 1800s, which is fascinating, right? Uh, I, 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 you start to see how these people would bring down these huge whales, these beasts that were 60, sometimes 80 feet long, and they'd bring them down with a harpoon. In his book, Moby Dick, Herman Mel- Mevel- Melville, 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 
yes, uh, talks about uh, the harpooning tactic when you take down this huge beast. And he says this, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness, not from out of toil. And I think that's the same thing in our life, to start with some great endeavor, whatever we're doing, big decisions that we make, or just going into a week, to start out of this idleness, this prayer and solitude where we kind of order our private world. We're able to bring it all together, and, and from that, we're able to take on any sort of tasks from the idleness, the peace of being with God. So in the life of Jesus, we find solitude and prayer. And then also in the life of Jesus, we find that limits and boundaries are your friends. Limits and boundaries are your friends. When you think of an artist, uh, an artist needs limitations. Artists like to say, you know, I'm, I'm outside of the box and I'm so creative and yada, yada, yada. They are to a point, but some of the best artists have limitations, a canvas, they have borders, and they can be as creative as they want within the boundaries of those borders. They, there's an organization, there's limits to their creativity. When you think about the most creative company in the world today, it's also the most organized company in the world today, and that's Apple. Scott Belsky, in his book, Making Things Happen, talks about the unbelievable organization that Apple has that, that spurs on creativity because of their limits, because of the boundaries that they've placed on their time. In the life of Jesus, we find these same kind of boundaries. Boundaries, what we find in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 is a story of when Jesus walks on water, and he just comes out of this time where Jesus feeds these 5,000 people. And we know that in that feeding of the 5,000, there's 5,000 men, which means there's all sorts of women. And if their children are anything like the children of this church, there's probably like, you know, 20,000 people that he feeds. So um, comes from uh, this great moment where uh, something, uh, something huge happens. He feeds all of these people. And, and then it says in uh, Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately after this happened, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. So his closest friends at this point, he says, just get out of here. Leave me alone. Just go ahead. Catch up with you later. And while, while they do that, then he dismisses the crowd. And he dismisses the crowd, and after he's done that, he went up onto a mountainside by himself to pray. So there's all of these, yeah, yeah, expectations from people. Does this great event? The disciples are like, where are we going next? Dismisses them, and then dismisses the crowds, and he withdraws. So this is like setting boundaries after something big has happened, where he just says, I can't be around people right now, and that's okay. We see boundaries and limitations with people that Jesus has in his life. Then in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, once again, we find Jesus, Jesus saying, no, he has a story where he heals a leper. And as he heals a leper, his, his works start becoming more and more popular. And in verse 15, it says, the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people became, came to hear him and he healed their sickness. But it says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And so as his popularity grew, the demands of the crowd grew, and the more popular he became, the more often we find this phrase where it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So he, he sets boundaries on the demands that life places on him where he just backs off and says, I got to get away. I got to stop. I got to slow down. And he doesn't break those boundaries with people. And then there's a story in Matthew chapter 14 
And in Matthew 14, it says, this is a story where John the Baptist is beheaded and, and this tragic event that takes place and Jesus gets word of it. And when they come and they tell Jesus about it in verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard the news of what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And for him, this was a time of grieving. For him, this is a time when, when things start to happen and the world starts to fall apart around you. He doesn't push on it. He doesn't try to, to go out and control it or make something happen. He withdraws and he's able to kind of grieve and allow, allow really the, the heaviness of this moment to pass. And then from there, we find that he goes out and does all these things where he's, he's healing people. And I think what, what tends to happen, and, and this is what I see in, in the life of Christ, when things start to fall apart around us, when things start to feel out of our control, our, 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 like we kind of lean towards trying to gain control back on the things that are falling apart around us. And what Jesus does here is when John the Baptist, someone that would be a huge ally for him, finds out that he dies, he actually retreats. And I think what happens is when things start to fall apart around us, there's things that are outside of our control that we need to just let go and then control the things that we can control. It's how we react to things. And I find that happening here with Jesus. He's retreating away from uh, the weight of the situation and grieving heavily. He has got, or grieving healthily, healthily, in a healthy way that allows him to go out and do his work again from this, from this moment. And so there's these boundaries that are placed upon himself that he can't just go out and do everything. And it's interesting because he's Jesus. He controls what he can control. And he grieves healthily, in a healthy way. So boundaries for grief. And then finally, what we find in the life of Jesus, which kind of goes hand in hand on this, is what, what we see is that in the life of Jesus, we find permission to say no because you've already said yes to something else. And so in this inactivity of Jesus, when he's actually turning his back on people or saying no or walking away from a crowd, um, it's because he knows what his purpose is here on earth. And so there's this, there's this story in, um, go to the next slide, there's a story in Luke chapter 4. And I just want you to think of the words of this story in Luke 4. And it says this in verse uh, 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place and the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. So they find him. He's trying to be in the solitary place and they try to keep him from leaving. And he says this to him, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the crowd comes to him wanting more from him. And he says no because he has this other thing that he has to go and do. He says, this is why I was sent, was to go and to preach the good news to all these other towns. And so while, while I could stay here and do this and it's a good thing, there's a greater thing that I've been called to. And I find in our schedules, if you've read uh, even the book Good to Great by Jim Collins, is we often settle for things that are good when God is calling us to these other things that are great. And when we know what we're, we're called to do, when we know our purpose, as Jesus knows his purpose, it gives us permission to say no to good things. And it doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that we know what our focus and our purpose is in life. And I think that's important. I think that's a healthy boundary that Jesus has where he says, there's all these people that have needs and, and I know what their needs are, but there's this more important thing that I have to go and do. And so good oftentimes becomes the enemy of great in our life. 
And we get pulled into all sorts of these different things that we're not necessarily wired or called or, yeah, just been given the reason to do. And this happens in our lives personally. This happens in, uh, to our families. This can happen to a church. Jesus has an unbelievable ability to focus on the main thing of why God brought him here, what his, perp- what his mission is, and he pursues that. And what we find is that he says no to this crowd here so that he can say yes to the better thing. So we talked about this, this idea of simplify, to simplify our lives isn't simply to stop doing things, but it's to be more in tune with who God has called us to be, to understand our identity, and to have a laser-sharp focus to pursue that thing that he's called us to do. And I think in our schedules, there's times where you have to say no to certain things because the greater thing that you're called and your purpose uh, of what this is where I need to spend my time and energy right now. And Jesus does that. There's healthy boundaries. There's healthy limitations for him to say no. It doesn't mean he doesn't love those people. It doesn't mean he can't be with those people. But he's got this other thing that he has to do. And I think that we need to have permission to say no to certain things in our life so that we can pursue the things that God has really placed on us in those moments. Jesus says no so that he can say yes. So as we talk about this idea of simplifying, we talk about our identity, being in touch with what God has called us to do and pursuing that is where we start to live life to the fullest. And as we look at the life of Christ, we find prayer and solitude, we find boundaries and limitations, and we find saying no to the greater things that we want to do and saying yes to those. Um, Especially, I think, as a church, there's so many different causes that we can get involved in. There's so many different projects that come our way as a community. And as we've spent this time um, trying to hone in on, on, on who we are and then what this community needs, the idea of focus is so important. We want to be a church for, for Desert Ridge. We want to be a church for North Phoenix. We want to be a church for this city. Um, but it starts here in this community, meeting this community's needs. And I wonder what that is for you. Um, what is it that God has called you to do that you know you're equipped, you're passionate about, you're wired, and then how do you need to start pursuing that? So a couple of practical things today as we end. When it comes to uncluttering our schedule, being overscheduled, um, when it comes to organizing our life, our private world, um, I think the, the first thing that we have to do is focus. Focus. I heard uh, that, uh, I think it was Bill Gates uh, was asked, it's either Bill Gates or it was Steve Jobs. I always get these guys mixed up. But they were asked, like, what is the, the thing that has led you to your success? Is it innovation? Is it vision? Um, what, is, what is the thing that has caused you to be successful in this world? And his response was simply focus. I was able to focus on the thing the identity, what I, would, what I needed to do, and chase after that with everything that I had. I was able to focus on that. This week, as you get ready to start your work week, what do you need to focus on? What do you need to just stop, pause, and say, this is what I want to pursue this week? Focusing in on that. The second thing is this, budgeting your time each week. We think about your schedules. My, my schedule is a disaster. And for me, trying to plan things is difficult because... I'm not like a super organized person. And so what happens is, this happened this week to the barn horse. We're supposed to get dinner on Friday night, and I overbooked because I don't budget my time well. What I found is that budgets are helpful, uh, obviously, in finances. Budgets are also helpful in other areas of life. For me, my diet, trying to diet because 
I'm like a fat guy trapped in a really skinny guy's body. And so the only diet that's ever worked for me is budgeting my calories. I have this app on my phone called Fitness Pal that says if you want to be this weight by this date, these are the amount of calories that you can eat a day. And then once you hit that each day, you got to stop eating. And so what I'm able to do is when I was able to budget my calories, I had limitations that allowed me to, to stop eating, which is good because it saves me from myself. But, but what if you do the same thing with your time, budgeting your time, and knowing I'm going to spend this much time at work this week, this much time recreation, this much time with my family, this much time with friends, and then sticking to that budget and knowing I have to live within the boundaries of this budget with my own time and energy. So focusing on the main thing and then budgeting time and then putting words on your calendars. This is something that uh, my wife does so well, but when you put words on your calendar, um, there's power to it. When you put words on your calendar, it actually is real and in place. And so in my own uh, scheduling uh, this week, double booked last week, and then plan on getting dinner with some people Tuesday night, and I didn't put it down on the calendar. Marcy found out about it this morning, and I am in hot water right now. So, uh, <laughs> But actually, like spending time putting things down on your calendar and saying, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to follow through with it. And then finally, this is helpful too, I think, is to make a to-don't-do list this week. As you unclutter your schedule, we all we have these lists of all these things that we're trying to accomplish. Maybe in coming out of your time of prayer, stopping, slowing down, and realizing, God, what are the things that I'm doing that I need to stop doing this week that I'm wasting just my energy on, and it's pulling me away from the things that I need to do? Um, so making a to-don't-do list, I think, is this healthy activity. And, uh, and, and my hope is that we get ready to start a new week, as, as today is Sunday, and as we start to simplify our lives, hone in on what God has called us to do, um, that you would put these things into action going into the new week. And I believe that this is something that's, that's simple. It's, it's, uh, it's not like a, a huge, like heavy spiritual topic, but at the same time, the fruit that we produce in our lives comes out of this order, comes out of the organization. And as we see, even the creation in the creation stories, God's bringing order to the chaos of the world. I think it does the same thing in us, and I think that we're called to be managers and bring or- organization out of the chaos. And I think that when we do that, we live more balanced, healthy lives. And so today, we're going to spend some time uh, just closing with some worship. And each week, we take communion as a time of just response, as a time of remembering what God has done for us. The communion represents this, that God has done work in this world for us. And in uh, the midst of us striving and trying to produce and trying to uh, produce results, we just remember that God has already accomplished the most important thing for us. And that was life with him, salvation that comes through his son's death and resurrection, Jesus. And so we stop and remember that he is God and that we are not. But then today also as you, as you take communion, last week we talked about kind of uncluttering our, our soul. This week, it's very simple. Think of this, this idea of uncluttering your schedule of simplifying so that you can focus on what God has called you to do and be. So let's take communion with that in mind, allowing God to organize our, our life around his purposes. And then um, we'll just spend some time in prayer and worship. And my hope today is that this moment would be a time for you to just rest and, and find rest for just the weariness of life so that we can be filled up to attack Monday tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for for life, for loving us, for, for guiding us. And Lord, we know that you offer us life that's eternal. 
You'll offer us restoration. And you invite us to start living that kind of life here and now. So Lord, I pray that we would be in tune with the life that you offer us as individuals, as families, as a church community. That you would order our private world so that we could be better disciples of you, so that we could be better uh, husbands, that we could be better wives, that we could be better fathers and mothers, that we could be better workers. Bring order to our chaos, Lord. We thank you for the life that you lived, the way that you show us. Lord, I just pray your blessing on, on these people today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.